Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. This week brought to you in stunning Technicolor. And hello and welcome. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meakin. And this is The Film File, your favourite show that you're currently listening to about film. <laughs> How do you know they're not listening to about 14 different shows at once? And if they are, this is their favourite one. That's well, yeah, I mean, I that, that, that goes without saying. They're the friendliest <laughs> film show, I think you can uh, you can definitely say. Yeah. We um, are a film file family. Yeah, we, we like to think that everyone out there is part of our family. And uh, we expect you to pay your maintenance by the end of the week. <laughs> <laughs> but Andy, didn't you... We were going through our, our listening figures and, and we're, we're on the rise, which is a good thing. Didn't you say we had some uh, American friends? <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, we, we've had like we've had some American listeners over the basically since we started, and we've had people from all parts of the world. But for some reason, over the past month and a half, we've suddenly gained a spike of people in Utah, specifically from Salt Lake City. So I think that the Mormon church has caught onto the show and are absolutely loving what we do. So for all you Mormons out there, you Latter-day Saints, kudos to you. You've picked the best show. We like to keep it clean. Occasionally we might upset you with some things that we say, but, you know, we know we, mean, we don't mean it. We're just saying it for a laugh. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been to Salt Lake City. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. It really is. It's uh, uh, one of my favorites, one of my favorite places I've, I've been to. Really liked it. Um, so hi, Salt Lake City. Feel free to say hi back. <laughs> What's been happening in your world then? Well, I mean, I, I I had the rest of my week off, kind of, and then went back to work, and then had the rest of my week off after that. Long story, not going to get into it here. But for me, over this past week, it, there has been some sad news. Um, one of the icons of my youth passed away a few days ago, and that is Sir Clive Sinclair, aged eighty-one. He was the creator of, well, the ZX Spectrum, the ZX81, the Z80. And I noticed Elon Musk had even uh, passed on his condolences. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, I mean, the sad thing was that the news items that I saw talking about his passing all had the picture of him in the failed Sinclair C5 electric car. He was ahead of his time. That's why Elon Musk mentioned his passing, because Elon Musk was basically, has brought electric cars to the forefront, Clive Sinclair was way ahead of way ahead of the technology at the time, and he created something which was a failure. But it's like the press were just deliberately mocking and saying, "Oh, well, this is all he's known for." No, he was known for his computer technologies. He was known for his innovations. He invented the pocket calculator. The guy was a technical genius, and I've mentioned before the ZX Spectrum is hugely influential to me. It was the computer for me, and it still is. I've got tons of games for it. I've still got my original ZX Spectrum. It still works. I adore the machine. Not only was it the machine that really got me into you know, gaming and also coding, I, I used to sit and just type up and make my own games just Fantastic. as a hobby. I've never been able to get my head around it. I'm just slightly, I think, slightly too old to have uh, 10 years difference, and I think I'd have been all over it. But I think just slightly... you just missed out on that. Yeah, it was just out of my frenzied periphery. obsession. Yeah. Uh, so the ZX Spectrum has been with me throughout my early life through to modern day. I've got T-shirts with ZX Spectrum logo. There's a, on the Gran Turismo Sport game on the PlayStation. I custom skinned the exterior of one of my cars 
with a Spe- Sinclair logo on one side, ZX Spectrum logo on the other, and the coloured stripes across the bonnet. I'm that obsessed with the machine. And so, you know, this was a, this was as much of a sad loss to me as it was a few years ago when Stan Lee sadly passed. So right. it, it, has been like quite a, it has been quite a hard-hitting week because it, it's one of them that it, you've, you've never met the person. You've never spoken with them. You don't know them. They don't know you. But the influence that they had upon you really, really made you the person that you are. And Sir Clive Sinclair's creations made me the computer geek that I am today. And it's interesting you should say that, Andy, about people that you've never met, that you have a, a, a some kind of spiritual bond with, even though they don't know you exist in the world. Yeah. I used to work for a magazine, uh, an entertainment magazine. That was kind of my journalistic upbringing. Uh, and I was in charge of sort of the entertainment features. And I sent a reporter out, and I wish I'd gone, uh, to do an interview with Brandon Lee, the son of Bruce Lee. And this was just before he started shooting The Crow. And when the sad news came of, of Brandon Lee's death on the set of The Crow, it was one of those things that, that, that hit me really, really hard. Because we'd had this exclusive interview with him. We came off as a nice guy. We had some exclusive photographs that, that we were taking at the interview. And um, it was really interesting because it was somebody I'd never met who was about my age. Uh, and I just I just found this to be such an uncontrollable loss, uh, inconceivable by the fact that I said I'd never met him. I didn't even do the interview, um, but I just took that as a loss really heavily at the time. I remember it. Mm. I don't know what my connection was. I don't know what made the loss so big. You know, usually you, you think about other things that have happened in your life. But, yeah, I found that really interesting looking back. I had no connection to him other than we ran this story and it was still an up and coming actor. I think it was for, Oh, it was, it, it was for a film like, um, I think the film he did with Dolph Lundgren. So he wasn't even a, uh, he, he wasn't really on the radar at that point, but he was up and coming. But yes, yeah, interesting that, that people we've never met whose lives somehow touches and, and uh, we become invested in, in, in their lives. And, and when they're gone, we actually feel it. We feel it as though it's somebody in the know. Yep. Anyway, moving on. What's in the show this week? Well, of course, it's the film file. So, of course, it's a packed show. We have news. We have reviews, which include... Uh, everybody's talking about Jamie, the um, spectacular musical that hits some screens across the UK, but also Amazon. Uh, Gunpowder Milkshake, uh, the action fest that landed finally in the UK this week. Chaos Walking which is a sci-fi that's been slaughtered by everyone in the press. Will I slaughter it as well? You'll have to listen later. And also, I've got a quick thing to say about the documentary Schumacher, which landed on Netflix this past week. This week's deep dive will be into Steven Spielberg's actually much slaughtered 1941. Did we love it? Did it make an impact on us? And of course, neat things and our look at this week's What If. But first, as mentioned, we can't get through a show without the item, which is fondly known as the news. So, uh, Andy, news. I'm going to start with box office, with some of the box office news that's landed today. And that's Shang-Chi. Yep. Holding its number one spot again. For three weeks. For a third weekend, uh, which now puts it round about $175 million it's taken in the US, which is only approximately 5 million away from what 
Black Widow has finished its box office in the US on. So it's well and truly surpassing it. Internationally, it's still doing strong and it's well on track to well and truly outperform Black Widow. What more can be said? It's a proof that the box office is is there. Yes. And that the people are there to go and see films on the big screen. It's why Marvel are moving away from doing this simultaneous day and date dropping. And it's it's why other studios are starting to think of release windows, which we've covered multiple times on the news. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it. If you want to hear our views on it, just go back to last week's show, which, of course, brings us round to the topic that we can't help but talk about, which is the, the same day release. Surely now all the studios are reconsidering or thinking about their release schedules and going, it's working for Disney. It must work for us. And also Disney must be looking back on Black Widow and going, darn, if only. Because I honestly yeah. do believe, I've said it before, that Black Widow suffered because of uh, uh, of the split release, not because it was a poor film and not because there wasn't an audience for it. Clearly there was, that's why it opened big. But I do think um, it, it would have lasted longer. Okay, it might have done Shang-Chi business, but I think it would have done a lot better. So yeah. interestingly, uh, a, a mainly Asian cast, uh, a brand new lead actor, a very unknown uh, quantity with with the character it makes you think now looking forward how will eternals do are we back in the mood for superhero movies or was this the one-off was this the, just the joy of the film of course we can't tell you what uh, eternals is going to be like because um, no one's seen it there's no 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 word on it as yet apart from what we've all seen so interesting days look forward to uh, discussing that one with you there is um, some linked news with regard shang chi and that's there's now allegations of simu lu being racist sexist misogynist and hateful in old posts which have been unearthed on reddit now this is similar to what happened to james gunn a few years ago where all of a sudden you've got someone who's uh, upset a few people spoken out against a few things and then people have gone digging into post history and trying to take out of context interviews or discussions that he did in the past to make them out to be something that they're not. I mean, there's accusations that he also supports paedophilia, which is completely wrong. It's because he had to study what made people paedophilic in nature as part of a role in his early career. And in getting to do that he got to understand aspects of it he never said that it was great he never said he never condoned it he just said he got to understand it but people are saying oh he understood it so obviously he wants to be one oh seriously this annoys me how when someone becomes successful comes out of nowhere proves people wrong and people want to go digging into their past history and twisting things that they've said there's also people trying to claim that he said stuff on reddit that doesn't exist anymore and trying to argue, oh, well, clearly he's deleted all the posts. Anyone who knows Reddit will know that you can access an archive. Anything that gets deleted is retained in that archive. There are ways to bring it out. These things aren't getting found. The ones that are getting found are being taken completely out of context by not having the opening paragraphs, closing paragraphs, or questions that are being asked. Stop falling for this kind of hysteria, people. Simu Lu might have said some dubious things, in the past, he might have misphrased things, but he's grown. The same way that James Gunn acknowledged that the things that he said in the past were of him at that time, Simu Liu has said exactly the same. He's grown and he's understood more as he's worked through his career. Stop 
attacking him. And I can only think that this attack, and it, it's sad to say, I can only think that this attack is because we have finally an Asian-American actor in a very prominent role getting celebrated. I, I, I applaud what you're saying, Andy. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we've all done things in our pasts, which have all of us have done things that we may regret later on, that we did as a knee-jerk reaction, that we did out of out of ignorance. There are hundreds of reasons that what makes us human beings. Now, there was a similar case of a British cricket player um, whose some of his past tweets came to light and were revealed to the public. And, you know, he, he said misogynistic things and homophobic things, which for the person who said them at the time was wrong. What becomes of that person? It just, it, it, there's this, this sort of understanding that the, the people who are cr- critical of, of others seem to fail to believe that we can all grow as people, mm-hmm. that we can say stupid, dumb stuff and not be able to move on to it. If the person still supports those views, then yes, he deserves, he or she yeah. deserves to be chastised for that if you are still supporting uh, outrageous beliefs. But we all grow as individuals, and and the people on web pages, like, uh, websites like Reddit, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, seem to to feel as though they hold some sort of moral superiority, which is usually a destructive force to try and wreck the careers of other people. I don't know what they think the outcome is. So let's say Marvel turn around and go, "You're not doing Shang Chi two because of uh, because of this," the same way that that James Gunn was was dealt with by Disney, not by Marvel. Let, let's let's yeah. point out. So um, what, what, have they, uh, what have they won? Is it a victory because uh, the guy said something or the victory because they might have ruined somebody's life or victory because you can then move on to the next person that you want to, you want to uh, rip, rip apart? I'm far from biblical, but um, you know, the, what's the phrase in the Bible about not throwing stones in glass houses? Yeah. Um, thankfully, I, I wasn't, there was no internet when I was younger because I said some, <laughs> did some stupid stuff ridiculous stuff which of course i've grown from i've learned from and hopefully become a better person for for my beliefs you know my beliefs have changed tremendously over the years certain things have come along certain things which i which shaped me uh, when i was younger i've changed as a, i'm older i've not got the same belief pattern intrinsically i'm the same person but i am open to change as are the people around me it's it's just i think yes it's it's a racist stunt but i, I do honestly believe that but I, you yeah. know, it's it's we can all go back into our histories, including the people who write the stuff on Reddit. And you know, if you're brave enough, put your stuff out and see how uh, what gilded cage you live in. Here, here. Uh, so that's that's our soapbox moment for this week. We always yes. have to have a soapbox have moment. So this this week it's uh, it's about it's about ganging up basically. Uh, so let's move on. So tickets for No Time to Die have now been on sale for about a week, and details of the IMAX moments have begun to be revealed. Approximately 40 minutes of the total two hours and 40 runtime were shot with IMAX 15 70 millimeter cameras, which is the first Bond film to have been shot in such a way. That is until Christopher Nolan shoots a Bond film, which I think one day he will. In which case, the whole thing will be shot in IMAX. The film will also be the first Bond film to play in both 3D and real D formats for those people who hate films so much that they want them ruined by gimmicks. <laughs> and if that isn't distracting enough, it will also screen in 4DX so you can get rainwater falling on you and weird oh. smells. 
God. You can smell 007. And also the 270-degree Screen X, which adds unnecessary distractions to the, per- to the peripheral vision that weren't actually shot by the filmmakers. They were just added in afterwards yeah. for anyone with ADD and wants something else to look at aside from the ceiling. For the rest of us... <laughs> oh, Andy, you're tickling me here. <laughs> we could just enjoy the final outing for Daniel Craig as he's pulled away from retirement by Felix Leitner to help, res- help rescue a kidnapped scientist. I will be watching this in the pure... 2D format as it's supposed to be watched, as it was filmed in, and as every Bond film has been. I don't need a gimmick to play alongside a Bond film. I don't need silly images at the side of the screen. I just want Bond. Let's just get our tickets. And tickets are selling really well. Has to be said, tickets are selling really well. This should be. We we were skeptical about whether it was going to make its 900 million that it might need. I'm, I'm starting to think, you know what? This could. Well, with that in China. Um, okay, I'm just going to play slight role of devil's advocate. Me, you ask. Why? Let's take a look at uh, IMAX. Let's take a look at 3D. If these are other instruments at the moment, other tools that, are, that can be displayed to bring people into the cinema, in this particular occasion, I think it's warranted because, you know, Bond is now a year and a half uh, late. There's still an audience who are coming into Bond fresh. If we can drag those in by giving them gimmicky cinema to see the movie, in this particular case, I think I almost could say I can allow it, but I, I kind of get <laughs> it. it. It's, you know, they've got to try and make that money back. And if they can offer alternatives, which A, gives you more ticket price and therefore hopefully brings money back into Bond, I, I kind of get it. Uh, on the other side of things, did you see Daniel Craig's very emotional thank you speech to cast and crew. Yeah, and what one thing that I picked up on that was yeah, we had it at the end of the filming of Spectre that there was all these like misquoting from interviews saying that Daniel Craig hates being Bond. He hates hates the whole thing. Rah, he, he, he'd rather die than play Bond again. This completely rained on that parade as I was doing when that quote was taken completely out of context way back then he showed how much being on this franchise and working with these people meant to him and he even referenced within his like short little speech how people might have heard that he doesn't like playing this role but he does it was such a great little clip yeah i kind of welled up yeah really heartfelt and you know it's one of them that you get the feeling that after watching that that if they had to turn around to him straight after said do you want to sign on for another film? He probably would have gone, yeah, yes, I just want to stay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great little moment. And it's, you know, we don't know how this film's going to play. We don't know what's going to happen to Bond by the end of it. We don't know whether he's going to die. We don't know whether he's going to retire, whatever. But yeah, it, it, that's just the, the nice little final moment just for him as an actor, showing such appreciation for this role that he was so happy and so lucky to get a part, get to be a part of. Yes. So that's Bond. What else have we got, Andy? So uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune is hotly anticipated here, but some film fans are now saying they're going to boycott it. Oh, no, it wouldn't be Zack Snyder, would it? <laughs> It'll be opening that, that barrel again. Well, the reason why is because Villeneuve is now the latest victim, and t- this is a theme this week, of hack journalism, garbage interviewers who ask someone about Marvel films to get a clickbait-grabbing headline. Yes, he's the latest big-profile person who, when promoting his current film, which has nothing to do with comic books, is asked whether Marvel films are cinema. Seriously, 
can I mean, I'm not even going to go into what his response was because his response was his own response. His response was what he feels about Marvel films. But everything that he said was then taken out of context, twisted and made out that he absolutely despises all Marvel films. Plot twist. He doesn't. Um, he just thinks they're formulaic, which they are. Let's be honest that some of them are formulaic. And he feels that repetition is dumbing down cinema, which it is. Nothing he said was wrong. But some idiots have decided it was a personal attack on them for him to not love the films that they love and are now acting like spoiled, petulant kids. Their loss, ultimately, actually. Seriously, the war over on Tinter Web Socials right now is crazy. The only justifiable reason for any anger of this magnitude will be if someone ran into a pub in Sheffield and shouted, Hendo's is just Worcester sauce with a different name, which uh, <laughs> I dare anyone to do that in Sheffield. <laughs> they take away your Yorkshire licence. If you do that. But uh, this, this is an ongoing thing. And this I mean, it's another soapbox moment. So let's, and it'll be a small soapbox because we've covered this a few times. Would interviewers stop asking stars and directors what they think of other people's films when they're trying to promote their own film? Let them talk. Let Denny's feel nerve talk about Dune. Let him talk about his plans for Dune too. Stop asking him whether he thinks Doctor Strange should pop up at some point. It's utterly pointless to him as a director it's nothing but clickbait grabbing material and this is all because of that clickbait that started with scorsese well it, it goes further than that andy it's it's every time i follow a couple of comic book movie sites in fact i've given you the title of the one that i follow work <laughs> it out um and every time there is a particular star talking about a movie clearly someone some reporter, and I use the term reporter very, very lightly, in the same way that I, I use the, 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 the phrase Hoover. It talks about a brand. Yeah. It's yeah. a vacuum cleaner. Anyway, they'll ask this poor, unwitting star, who's your favourite character and who would you like to play out of the Marvel Universe? So, so clearly not everyone is a comic fan. They'll reach for the one that they remember. Spider-Man comes up more times than not, or Batman. Yeah. And then you'll get a headline going, uh, such and such person is interested in playing Batman. Such and such would really like to play Spider-Man. Because you've asked them in a press conference and they've gone, yeah. the first one that comes into head, just because you're a film geek and we're film geeks and comic geeks and we could say every character, please, they're all going to go the ones that they know from the movies that they've seen if they're not interested. Yeah. So stop make it's not journalism. It, and it's, it's this whole thing is that people see it. I mean, I've seen people saying, oh, Villeneuve is going out bashing marvel films he's not he's not running out into the streets and screaming marvel films are all rubbish he is at an interview answering questions the fault is on the journalists and it's lazy journalism because they can't think of a decent question to ask of a director that they haven't researched and so they just clutch for the the, the sound bites they clutch for something simple what's your favorite what's your favorite marvel film how much is a pint of milk? Stupid questions. I mean, I know Empire Magazine ran a whole thing of like, how much is a pint of milk? But, <laughs> we'll forget but, you know, that. I, that was great. <laughs> it, it, it was good when they did it at the time. But even they realised after a while, this is getting old. Yeah. Let's move on before our, our blood starts to boil too much. <laughs> I've got a little bit of news. Connect us slightly to Marvel. Uh, Hayley Atwell, of course, voiced Captain Carter as well as playing Peggy Carter. She did indeed. Has now been attached to Netflix's Tomb Raider anime series with her providing the voice of Laura Croft. I've got a thing for Hayley Atwell, I'll be honest. Always have, always will. <laughs> when this was announced, my instant thought was like listening to, like listening in my head what Hayley Atwell sounds like. I just went, yep, yep, that's Laura Croft. 
Perfect. Can't think of a better person to be adding that voice to an animation animated series. And talking of Netflix, do you remember Matt Wagner's series Grendel? Well, Netflix really? are continuing to draw from the comic world, hoping for that success, because they've only really had the Umbrella Academy as a success. Jupiter Legacy, we're looking at you. And, and they are now <laughs> bringing, with the hope of a huge success, I'll grant them Sweet Tooth, but we'll move on from that. Yeah. Uh, they're bringing Grendel. Not a comic that I ever read, I'll be perfectly honest. One of those that I recognized yeah. for years and years and years, and when I used to work in a comic shop, it always turned in. Always got a, a hardcore devotee. Uh, it was a Dark Horse comic, um, but I, I never got into it. Um, Grendel follows Hunter Rose, a gifted fencer, writer, and assassin, seeking to avenge the death of a lost love. Goes to war with New York's criminal underworld, only to realize why beat them when you can join them. Some more news of Nolan moving across to work for Universal dropped this week to make his Oppenheimer film, which we discussed last week. We now know that it's been reported that he, and in the words of the, the clickbait articles again, demanded 100 million budget with 100 million marketing, 100 day exclusivity, full creative control, no other release from the studio for three weeks either side, and a 20% first dollar gross deal. Which, obviously, you can, you can understand that the not-so-serious clickbait reporters out there have been spinning this into how dare he demand this. But let's be honest, it's pretty normal. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing nothing new there. Christopher Nolan having full creative control. He had that with Warner Brothers. A $100 million film, a tentpole movie with $100 million. It's actually quite cheap, to be honest with you. Uh, $100 million marketing budget. Yeah, on a tentpole movie, you normally double the normal budget and that gives you the marketing. So that's normal as well. A 100-day exclusive window. Well, that's the standard. I know that yes. the industry is moving towards the 45-day, but Nolan wants to keep the standard. Uh, no other release from the studio, Universal, three weeks either side. Why would a studio drop other releases at the same time as their own tentpole movie? It doesn't happen anyway. All he's done is he's made sure that all the normal methods that are put into place are put into place with him. Full creative control and 20% deal. He's had that for the past decade and a half with Warners. Why are people moaning about the fact that Universal are going to give him this ex same exclusivity that Warners had? Stop getting upset about clickbait headlines, people. Actually read the full details and think. That's all we're asking you here. We ask you to just <laughs> read past the clickbait. Um, but at the same article that also sparks that terrible clickbait headlines, it's also revealed that the film is going to use extensive visual effects to recreate the 1940s era and show the atomic tests on screen. But it's going to be more drama and less spectacle. So the the digital effects will be to create the visual aesthetics of the 40s. We won't get to see like bombs exploding left, right and centre. This isn't a Michael Bay film. This is a Christopher Nolan film. And it is definitely looking like Cillian Murphy is tipped to play Oppenheimer. Here's some good news, which I, I'm assuming made you very happy. Travis Knight returning to Laker for stop motion animation with the film Wildwood. Oh, yeah. I mean, Tra Travis Knight is just such a great storyteller. And Laika, as much as their films don't manage to get an audience on the big screen, which they deserve much more than what they get, they make the kind of marvellous tales that I love to watch. And I'm in, even without knowing anything about the story of the film, I am in. Story is set beyond Portland city limits in Wildwood. You're not supposed to go up there and you're not even supposed to know it exists. But young Prue McKeel is about to enter this enchanted wonderland this is written 
by Colin Malloy and illustrated by Carson Ellis from their novel Wildwood and has missing links Chris Butler on script duty. So we can all get very excited with the prospect of that. Uh, remakes and sequels time. So the sequel to Twins is still insisting that it's going to be a thing. And joining yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito for triplets will be Tracy Morgan. The... <laughs> you know you don't even have to just leave it there uh, don't even go into any detail because the tone of your voice uh um just just leave it there let let our dear listeners ponder that one for a moment i feel that what would you have said i feel that i need need to just i need to just got it i think I, i think i just need to move on and just say that the film will start shooting in early 2022 when in a film in which julian and vincent find out that they have a third brother who was conveniently missing in those flashback moments from the first film strange that um eddie murphy was initially tagged but scheduling conflicts and most likely him reading the script and going i need a better agent prevented it morgan came on board and the script was then redrafted to adopt his style (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> annoying w- waste know? of screen time get in the bin that's the style that i can think of with tracy morgan <laughs> <laughs> do you know that william goldman probably the greatest scriptwriter of our time thinks that uh twins has got one of the best script concepts ever <laughs> yeah. the original that is not not this version well yeah i mean to be fair the original twins it's actually not bad. No, it was Ivan Reitman, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a really clever idea. Yeah, yeah. Ivan Reitman's back to direct anyway, triplets. But um we can always just hope that he decides to back away from it and leave it to Fester. <laughs> um, Talking the, of Fester. Have you got an Adam's family <laughs> link? <laughs> I have a really great link off that one. So I'm so glad that you've uh you've mentioned that. Gwendolyn Christie joins Tim Burton's Adam Family series Wednesday. She, of uh, Game of Thrones fame, Force Awakens appearance, won't say fame, <laughs> is joining the cast as the tough principal of Nevermore Academy. You know, you set him up, I'll knock him down. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I, I, I think Tim Burton's got the right kind of eye to do like a an updated Adams Family-esque yeah, I could totally agree. series spin-off. Um, over at Disney, Disney are continuing to remake old properties for their Disney Plus service. And the latest is Flight of the Navigator, which is going to be reimagined and given a gender-swapped lead with Bryce Dallas Howard directing and producing. For those of a certain age who remember the original film, it followed a young boy who travels eight years into the future in an adventure with a wisecracking intelligent alien ship. And to be fair, it's not that great. No, and this is one of those films that deserves to be remade because I always thought the concept yeah. was a really neat concept. Kid gets uh, abducted. Uh, and when he gets brought back, it's eight years later. So his entire family have grown up. And um, you're right, he's got a wisecracking spaceship. I love the concept. And now I've always been led to believe that the original version of, of the script was much, much darker. So it'd be interesting to see if we we go down that that route. The only up point for me is that Pee Wee Herman provided a lot of the voices yeah. for it. But that is... And it had some quite interesting um, early CGI... Uh, spaceship uh, effects, which uh, what is one reason it stood out? I, th- I, th- I think the effects aspect is one of the reasons why a load of people who watched it when they were young were just so caught up in it and have this memory of it being something more than what it was. But yeah. it's one that when I watched it when it first came out, I kind of went, oh, that looks good. But I was instantly, I instantly forgot it afterwards. And I went back and revisited yeah. it a few years ago. And I just, like you say, there's there's something there, but it doesn't tap into it. 
So, fingers crossed. It's a bit bland, isn't it? It, It's just fairly bland. It's on screen and then it's gone. Um, Hopefully, this reboot finds a new way to approach the story and does something a bit different with it. So, fingers crossed. This is what the Disney Plus reboots and remakes should be. They should be taking something that's got the potential but never quite achieved it and do something different with it. And if Cruella's anything to go by, they know how to do something creative and different with old franchise. Yeah, moving on. Paranormal Activity Next of Kin is the title of the surprise new entry in the franchise, and it's been granted an R rating by the MPAA for violence and bloody images and language throughout. The previous films never dwelled on the blood and gore, but Jason Blum did say that this was a new approach to the series, and the trailer that has been released teases us, us with images of a blend of traditional filming and some hidden camera aspects, and doesn't reveal much as to what's actually going on. The film will land exclusively on Paramount Plus on October the 29th, and it's currently being rumoured that it's not going to see a distribution outside that service until early 2022. But that's just rumour at the moment. We'll update as soon as we know, but it's not looking like it's going to get into UK cinemas until next year. Okay. A sixth Purge film is on the way because... <laughs> I thought I thought that was it. I thought we were, we were purged out. Oh, no. People turned up for Forever Purge, so of course they're making another one. Frank Grillo is going to reprise his role as Leo Barnes, who was seen in the second and third films. And Grillo, uh, the most interesting part of the purge for me. Yeah, uh, Grillo's confirmed his involvement. Committed, we committed to doing that. Purge six is with James directing. It's based on Leo Barnes's character. I'm excited. He's going to send me the script. He's just finished it. So yeah, I'm psyched about that. I love doing the purge movies. I'm psyched. They called me and said James wanted to direct one more, and I'm like, don't even tell me. I'm in. So he's excited. In case you couldn't tell from that, I mean, I, I quite like Frank Grillo. I'm I'm quite. Yeah, taken. I do. I do. I- He's kind of that B movie actor that brings an awful lot of charm and screen presence. in in an, in the uh, in the eighties, he would have been probably absolutely huge. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I've got a lot of time for him. I think he, he brings a lot of screen presence. I'd like to see him bust out and do something a little bit against type. Uh, he's also <laughs> mentioned that we will be seeing more of him in, as Crossbones uh, for the, for the MCU, but I don't know if that's with What If or. Or, or, or whatever it's going to be done. If he would have been fitted in perfectly in the 80s, then it kind of makes sense that he's going to be starring in a remake of Stallone's Nighthawks from the 80s. You see, I don't have a problem with that as a remake. I'll let yeah. you go and I'll tell you why. Well, it's getting remade as an eight-episode TV series with Stallone himself okay. directing, and Grillo has been cast in what was Stallone's role. I did have a soft spot for, for Nighthawks. Uh, it brought uh, Rutger Hauer to the attention of, of international audiences. It was Stallone trying something different. It was one of those films that was nearly, nearly there. There was so much more right with it that was wrong with it, but what was wrong with it stopped propelling it into being a, a bigger movie. Yeah. But the the relationship, for instance, between him and his sidekick, Billy D. Williams, could have been a lot more. So I, I'm very open, and I wasn't aware of this news, to exploring Nighthawks. Because I think it's it's a it's worth going back to because there was so much that was quite good in it, and I, and I think in a TV series you can get over the weaker points in it. Well, we'll get to. I think I think a TV series will definitely work for it. And Frank yeah. Grillo is involved. I'm involved. Uh, last couple of bits of news. A small bit of casting. Chris Pratt will be teaming with Tomorrow War co-star Sam Richardson for an action comedy called Standard Assets for Universal. Story details are currently under wraps, and. Noah Juppé from A Quiet Place and Jaden Mattel from It and Knives Out have both been cast in a remake of the 1987 Lost Boys. 
The original, as we discussed many episodes ago, uh, followed two brothers and their mother who moved to Santa Carla, the vampire capital of the world. The film made an icon of Keith Sutherland and also starred Jason Patrick, Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. The new version is going to be penned by Randy McKinnon with End of the the World creator Jonathan Entwistle directing. Again, I don't have the love that everybody else has for Lost Boys. And we talked about this when we talked about Near Dark. I thought it was okay. Enjoyed it. It's incredibly dated now. Um, you know, Joel Schumacher, bless him, brought that sort of uh, um, art direction aesthetic to it that made makes it look as though clearly that it's a seven. Start again. That clearly, it's an eighties film, but I just don't have the love for it. And again, one of those scripts which was a lot darker when it started out, and I'd like to go down that route of exploring the more more darker Peter Pan esque qualities of it. So, but yeah, I'm open to a to a remake on Lost Boys. It's not sacred ground for me. And that is the news. Still with us, still enjoying the film file. Were you aware there are over 80 other previous episodes as well as bonus episodes? You weren't. Well, all you have to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button. And remember to hit that like button as well as leave a review. And trust me, we won't ever tell the Babadook where you live. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so. By reaching out to us at... Over on Twitter, at Filmfile UK. On Instagram, Filmfile UK. Or you can email us with thoughts, suggestions, lyrics to music videos, anything. I'm happy to read anything. Podcast at Filmfile.uk. You can even tell us why you like Babadook, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> or if you live in Salt Lake City, tell us how you found the show. Our deep dive this week is one of those very rare things. A Steven Spielberg film that was not as financially or critically successful as many other of his films, even though it received a belated popularity after an expanded version aired on American television and its subsequent TV on cable TV and home video rose it to the level of cult status. Which Steven Spielberg film are we talking about? Well, it was written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who brought us back to the future. It starred an ensemble cast which featured Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, John Candy, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson and Toshiro Mifune, as well as Mickey Rourke and Robert Stack in small parts. And the story involves a panic in Los Angeles after the December Pearl Harbor attack in the year 1941. December 1941, the California coast. The Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. The nation's heroes were on the alert. Look, you guys, a Jap sub! The dummy's right. <gasps> California could be next. Who did I shoot there? I don't know! This is war. Oh, come on, come on. A country's honor was at stake. The lives of millions would be protected by a brave few. This is their story. Excuse us, ma'am. From the director of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The most explosive comedy spectacular ever filmed. What the hell do you people think you're doing? (laughs) Dan Aykroyd. Ned Beatty. John Belushi. Lorraine Gaff. Murray Hammond, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson, Toshiro Mifune, Warren Oates, 
Robert Stack, Treat Williams. I can assure you, there will be no bombs dropped here. Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures present an 18 production of a Steven Spielberg film. Ah! 1941. <laughs> when we think of Steven Spielberg, we don't think big, all-out, crazy comedy. Usually that territory is left to someone like John Landis. But no, he tackled 1941. The chaos of the events following the Pearl Harbor attack. And it's summarized by Dan Aykroyd's character, Sergeant Tree, who states he cannot stand Americans fighting Americans. This film is closer to It's a Mad, 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 Mad World than it is to any other Steven Spielberg film. This is the film that subsequently let Steven Spielberg move on to Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. So it's important. But as we said, it's not particularly well thought of however it's a film that andy and i both like a lot for the fact that it is a crazy comedy that really holds together in the flimsiest of ways great cast great settings fantastic special effects andy 1941. This is a film that I've held a torch for for many years, but I thought that I was alone in it. And it's only when you recommended it as a deep dive, I was like, you like it as well. Excellent. It's a um, bit like a dirty secret, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You, you like 1941. Yeah, you know, saying it normally in, in polite society, you get shunned from parties. You get you get stripped of your film licenses. I mean, I, yeah, if you in the old days of renting films from Blockbuster, if you went in and asked if they had 1941, they revoke your membership and kick you out. Uh, that's how disregarded this film is. I remember seeing this as a kid, early 80s VHS, and I heard after I watched it that it was widely regarded as a mess, even though I kind of enjoyed it when I was watching it. And despite being told by many that I shouldn't revisit it as I got older, because it's terrible, in my early 20s, I did. I took that plunge and I revisited it to see whether it was just eight-year-old me had loved this film because you're an eight-year-old and you're stupid. And in my early 20s, when I watched it, I found a lot of fun still to be had with it. And since then, it's become an occasional revisit. Every four or five years, I'll stick this on again. Yes, the film is patchy. Yes, it stays on far too long for a comedy farce. I mean, it's almost two hours in the standard cut, and the director's cut is 146 minutes. Wow, I've never seen that. Never seen that version. But by golly, there's a lot of fun moments within this that just land so well for me. Uh, like you say, it's set in the days after the attack on Pearl Harbor. The west coast of the US is paranoid that another attack's going to hit the mainland and all the forces are deployed, causing mayhem and chaos to the areas they occupy. Out in the ocean, a Japanese sub manned by the most inept crew ever, alongside a Nazi officer played by the ever-excellent Christopher Lee, stalks the water seeking a target, hoping to locate Hollywood and make an impact before they can return to Japan with, with honour. And from the start, Spielberg is having fun. He starts the film with a parody of his opening moments of Jaws. The skinny dipping scene is reenacted. Only this time, it's not a shark under the water. It's a submarine. And from that point onwards, I was caught. I was chuckling and I was thrown from one scene to the next. I rewatched this a couple of days ago and the scattershot effect with which he throws all the mini sketches and like 
additional storylines together. You have like three minutes with these characters. Then you bounce over to these ones and bounce over to these ones. So if you don't care too much for one section, that's fine. Because John Belushi's Captain Wild Bill Kelso will be up in a, in a few minutes. And boy, he's a genuine highlight. It It's one of these, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And for me, more of it sticks than what falls. I'll, I'll give you that, Andy. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, let's be honest. It, it is a bit of a mess of a film. Too many characters who aren't necessarily always funny. Spielberg loves his slapstick gags and whether that's a slapstick gag that involves people or machinery like tanks and planes. It's a, it's a love letter to, to, to planes and we've seen Spielberg tackle this before. It's, it's got a great cast. It's got a it's got an old-fashioned feel. As I said, it's a mad, 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 mad world. It, it, it reminds me of that. It, it's slightly as though he has this huge pot and he just throws everything into it. And now some of it makes for a great recipe and some of it he just he just overcooks. But it's got a, a, a great energy to it. And even though it is flawed, it, it's flawed because it's, it's not that it's a terrible film. It's flawed because... It's a director who was at, at the top of his game, given too much freedom. And we've talked about this with, with other directors. And and he went on a jaunt to make uh, the kind of 1940s to the 1960s screwball, big budget, star-packed vehicle of, of old. And it, and it feels like a love letter, let alone the, the effects sequence, which are absolutely stunning. It's just a little bit all over the place. But if you can get over the all, the all over the place-ness of it, then there's a there's a fine and, and beautifully crafted film at the heart of it that that is is hit and miss and and I agree there are a lot of misses but there's some some great hits and if you're in the right mood for it and you go in expecting that then then it works it's funny because I I I knew of the film before I saw it because it didn't do well in the states it got a, a quite a limited release in the UK and in fact appeared in in one of those sort of cinemas where you used to get films that that were coming round again after a second release or hadn't quite done well. And so I never saw it in its full glory, but I absolutely loved it. And I, I loved everything connected to it. I loved the look of the film and I, I had the poster on my wall. And I love Stephen Bissett and Rick Veach's uh, wild take on, on the comic book adaptation of it, which was, was absolutely crazy. And in fact, Steven Spielberg distanced himself from it. But as Bob Gale said, it's down in history books as a big flop, but it wasn't. The movie didn't make uh, the kind of money that uh, that Spielberg's films usually did, but the film was by no means a flop, and both Universal and Columbia have come out of it just fine. And I think think that's it. I think you you because you think of it as a flop, you go in expecting it to be terrible. It's not terrible. It's great. It's not always particularly funny, but it's 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 a visual riot, and you just stick with it and and there's a reason he never went back to that kind of filmmaking because it doesn't always work but just seeing it is 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 an absolute visual treat and because of that because he reined himself in uh, and because he knew he'd gone over budget and he he delivered his first flop to a studio when it came to raids of the lost ark he would take much more control over the budget and and, and much more yeah. control about delivering on time and therefore without this film we wouldn't have got Raiders, we wouldn't have got E.T., and I don't think we would have got the Spielberg we know today. The casting in 1941, you, you rattled off some names earlier on, and that doesn't even scratch the surface of all the people who pop up within here that you'll recognise. But the highlights, I mean, I've already mentioned John Belushi's Captain Wild Bill Kelso, who's um, a crazed fighter pilot, 
on perfect manic form. And one thing that I love on his character is the eccentricities of he never seems to drink. He always like gets off, like he takes a, a swig and then spits it straight out. And there's a great sequence where he lands outside an army base and goes in to get an updated report on what's happening. And he walks along and everyone's giving him a drink and it's spit spit and then walks back out doing exactly the same and it's just so perfectly ridiculous that it has me chuckling every time that i watch it uh, slim pickings has a moment in the film that's completely inconsequential to the rest of the story but it was just an excuse to get slim pickings abducted by japanese submarine naval officers and tortured with prune juice and it's hilarious it's a cracking 10 10 minutes approximately he's in the film for and that's all that he does he gets abducted doesn't disclose any information and escapes but the whole sequence is brilliant it's absolutely marvelous and you even get the, the great robert stack who you briefly mentioned he gets a ch chance to shine as major sitwell who makes me chuckle at how emotional he gets at disney's dumbo as he sat watching it while all the mayhem's going on outside the movie theater like i said there's a lot to love in this film, but, and here's the slight issue, sometimes the humour leaves you wincing because it's not aged very well. There's racial caricatures, there's an attempted assault that is played for laughs, there's blatant misogyny, which may be reflective not of the time that the film was made, late 70s, early 80s, but the time it was set in. But Spielberg isn't as skillful in approach as someone like Mel Brooks when it comes to handling such sensitive issues. And his use of this type of comedy feels awkward and it feels misplaced. There's an attempt to do reverse blackface with whiteface at the same time, which happens towards the end of the film with the tank crew, which kind of doesn't work because it then resorts to the now blacked up John Candy being told by the now white of Frank McRae to get to the back of the tank and feeling really upset that he's been put into the lower position. And yes, it's satirizing the values of the 40s, but it feels, it just feels unnecessary and it feels, it feels somewhat nasty. Yeah, I think there is a mean spirit to it. Um, there's nobody that's ever really particularly likable in this film. And I think that's, again, one of the reasons why as a, it, it didn't engage. We know that it, it made money, um, but it just didn't engage. Look, this is not, that it's not Spielberg firing on all cylinders. Whatever you think of the film, it's a glorious looking looking movie with some fantastic spectacle, some spectacular special effects and, and yes. some uh, some great set pieces. It's just one of those screwball comedies that, that it's not Steven Spielberg's genre to do screwball. Somebody like John Landis, I think, would have done a better job on this. but And it just collapses under a, a, a glut of ideas. And it, at times it's confusing and it's awkward in its laughs. But as a piece of filmmaking, and that alone gives it the perfect reason to sit and watch it. Whether you think it's funny or not by the end of it, you're still in for a visual treat and you'll have never seen anything like it. And you know what? You'll never see this kind of comedy, this big scale, huge screwball comedy again. It really is a part of an era. And maybe again, that's where they went wrong. Maybe in the 60s, this kind of film would have worked. When it lands, it lands really well. The humour, when it lands, the slapstick elements really play well. It's a joyously satirical approach to wartime hysteria. And it, like you say, it looks spectacular. It well and truly deserved the Oscar nomination that it received for the special effects. And, of course, the music from John Williams 
the rousing March main theme is possibly one of his best pieces of his career, in my opinion. It's an awkward film. It's a messy film, but it's an unashamedly fun film at the same time. And it's definitely worth a watch. If you've always been put off with this because you've heard that it was a bomb, you've heard that it was a disaster, don't let anyone else sway your opinion. Give it a watch yourself. You might find something to it, love in it the same way that even though I recognise the faults in it, I still embrace the film overall. Andy, where can we find 1941? It regularly pops up, usually around Christmas time, on one of the terrestrial TV channels. Um, at the moment, it's not available for free on any streaming service, but you can rent it from all streaming services such as uh, Amazon, etc., etc. Rental is the way to do it at the moment. Give it a few weeks and maybe it will pop up somewhere. Okay, and that's 1941, and that's the deep dive for this week. Let's move on to this week's reviews. Andy, are we going to start with our very own Sheffield homegrown musical? Not many things you can always say a Sheffield homegrown musical. I think we should. They, they say that everybody's talking about him, but at this point in time, Andy's going to be talking about Jamie. Baby, I'm a hit. Ladies and gentlemen, Legit. would you give a warm welcome for the soon-to-be legendary... Jamie New. Me? Sorry, miss. Just daydreaming. Pretty. i got something to show you. you got to swear not to tell anyone. Tell anyone what? I want to be a drag queen. Oh, my days. You belong in the spotlight. So, why do you want to be a drag queen? Because it's all I ever dream of. And when I close my eyes, it's all I can see. You just found yourself a mentor. Yeah, yes, please. I don't know who I am. You're 16, of course you don't. Do what you need to do. Be who you want to be. Mom, do you ever wish I were just normal? No, I'm not normal anyway. Stop waiting for permission to be you. If I don't say it enough, you're the best friend a boy who sometimes wants to be a girl could ever wish for. So, everybody's talking about Jamie. This is a film that sees the young Jamie, played by Max Harwood, a 16-year-old ready to finish school and join the real world, who dreams of being a drag queen and is supported in his dream by his mother and his close friends. However, there's obstacles in his way, which include a father who disowned him, a teacher who thinks he should get a real job, and the school bully who takes every opportunity to bring him down. When Jamie visits a store to buy himself an elaborate dress, he encounters Richard E. Grant's Hugo Battersby, a.k.a. Loco Chanel, who encourages him to embrace his passion and be what he wants, nay, desires to be. Now, disclaimer, I've never seen the musical. I've never seen the stage show. I'm totally aware of the phenomenon that it was, but I wasn't sure how I was going to take to this film, which is inspired by a real life story. Yes, I remember the, remember the real life story more than I remember the musical. I've never been a fan of drag acts. I find them all attitude and no entertaining. How would I cope with a musical all about them? Turns out I'd cope quite well. In fact, I embraced this film from the start. The casting of this was critical. If I couldn't care for the lead, then I'd struggle to care for a story that would be a drag. Newcomer Max Harwood was a risk. 
He's not been anything. He, he doesn't stand out for me. I had nothing to base him on. But man, he sells it. And right from the very first scenes, his affable and positive energy permeates the screens and it drew me in. For a first-time star, he makes this film his own, as it should be, and he even steals the spotlight from the great presences such as Sarah Lancaster playing his mother, Ralph Innocent as his father, and of course, Richard E. Grant. When you can steal moments on screen away from Richard E. Grant, you are destined for greatness, and Max Harwood is clearly destined for greatness. This is a musical, so let's be honest, the songs need to work. It's all well and good having a great lead and a strong supporting cast and a strong story about believing in yourself, because that's what this story is. It's about believing in your dreams, following your ambitions, and never letting anyone hold you back. But if, if in a musical, if the music is lacklustre, then you'll end up having, well, Grease too. And if you're a fan of Grease 2, feel free to email in and tell me how wrong I am, because that film sucks. Uh, but thankfully, each and every number within Everybody's Talking About Jamie buzzes, and the choreography makes use of the film environments, making it not feel like it originated on a stage. This feels like it was made for film. So many musicals, when they take that leap over to movie production, they feel like, oh, well, They've just reenacted what was shown on stage. Here, it makes use of the environments. It makes use of the classrooms. It makes use of the, the shopping centers. Everything is utilized and made to be visually spectacular. It's a joy. I had a joy with this. It had me weeping at moments. I was so caught up in the life of the young Jamie. Does it make me want to see the live production? No. I have no ambition to go and watch the live stage show of this. But I will be re-watching this film again in the same way that I never want to see Greece on stage. I never want to see Evita on stage and I never want to see Les Mis on stage. But I re-watch them on a regular basis because these musicals work so well for me on the, on the screen as movies that I don't need to risk seeing a stage show that will come across as cheap. You know, I have no interest in seeing this film um, based on even the things that you said that sound very, very positive. The bits that, that do interest me are the fact that it's shot on location. And, and I was around, I saw, I saw them shooting uh, not far from where you were, Candy. Um, but I don't know. I'm just not drawn to it. I'm not drawn to see it in cinema. I'm not drawn to see it on Amazon+. Plus. It just passes me by. I have, it's not often that a film comes out, which is gaining some notoriety critically, that I have absolutely zero, zero interest in of catching it at any point. However, my good lady saw it and loved it. But for me, it's just a, it's just a no go. What else have you got for us, Andy? So, Gunpowder Milkshake. We've waited longer than everyone else to get this, uh, due to Sky getting an exclusive distribution deal in the UK, and it's managed to see a very limited cinema release at the same time as it landed on Sky this week. And this is an action film with Karen Gillan and Lena Headey, with Gillan playing a young assassin who teams up with her estranged mother, who's also an assassin, to protect an orphaned girl after a hit goes south fast. With the agency removing protections from her, she faces the full force of an underworld boss's factions. There's a group called The Firm. Give the kill order. They think they can get away with anything. We're gonna bring the sky down on their heads. Think you have a chance here? No! We have an army. Well, I've got my mom. <laughs> oh, damn it. Gunpowder milkshake. My grandmother. God, no. Now, there's a nice lineup of names in this film, which seems to want to be a lighter and kind of neon-edged John Wick kind of film. Alongside Gillen, we have Lena Headey, as I said, Carla Gugino, Michelle Yeoh, 
Angela Bassett, Ralph Innocent, again, who um, goes from musical to action spectacle, Michael Smiley, the great Michael Smiley, Paul Giamatti, and much more. And they all seem to be having so much fun in their roles. Smiley, in particular, is an absolute delight on screen as a doctor who looks after the underworld denizens. But really, really, you can't trust him. I mean, you can't trust him in anything you see him pop up in, but he's always great to watch. And the cast are having so much fun. They are clearly having a lot more fun than what the film actually lets us have. Despite some sumptuous action set pieces, the whole film feels formulaic and somewhat flat. And by the time it trudged past the 90-minute mark, with the realisation that there's another 25 minutes to go, it was rapidly running out of steam. In the end, it limped to a final act that just about salvaged the plodding midsection. But if you ask me what happened, I'd struggle to remember anything clearly from the whole film except for Michael Smiley being marvellously creepy as the Doctor. That's the only thing that stood out for me. The rest of it was just so generic. It's just another in a long line of similar toned action films. We spoke about one last week, Kate, uh, which I absolutely praised. But these are getting churned out left, right and centre. Ever since John Wick told directors that they don't need to shape the camera so much and you can choreograph action, we are now getting overdone choreography that maybe... They need to not have every fight take five to ten minutes. They can actually yeah. cut them down a bit. Immediately forgettable entertainment, sadly, which is a shame because I had a lot of expectations for this. And I just feel that I just feel that it's watchable, but immediately dis- disposable. Well, that's disappointing to hear because I, I was more interested in seeing this one. But what I'm interested in is the rise of Karen Gillan, because mm. to say she started out in in comedy as a as basically a bit player moved up to doctor who which absolutely broke her yeah. you know it was things like that it was things like you know guardians you know she's had a, a had an amazing career now she's gone on to direct as well so you know for that young scottish actress absolute kudos that she's now a, a leading lady in, a, in an action genre does she do it andy in um, uh, an american accent or does she use her own natural accent Ah, uh, she she well, I think she's trying an American accent. I'm not overly convinced on it. Um, but yeah, she's not in her own accent. She is playing She is playing American noir. And anything else? Now, Doug Lyman's Chaos Walking arrived on Amazon. And it's based on a sci-fi novel, stars Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. That was enough to get me interested. Lyman, Holland, Ridley. So how come it just slid onto Amazon without fanfare? Well, that's probably due to the film suffering multiple production issues, rewrites, reshoots, and critical panning and box office failure on its US release. Yeah, I mean, this film was sat on the shelf. It was knocked about into into some sort of shape. I've heard it's one of those novels that when you try and break it down is, is one of those novels that should be left best unfilmed because of, of, of the, the sort of the curve of the storyline and, and, what, and what one of the major plot points is. It just did get thrown out for somebody like Tom Holland, who's now kind of, again, somebody who's just risen up through the ranks at the top of his games. This should be a big opening feature, but it kind of limped into not even not even to a big screen release, into a a streaming release. Uh, Andy, what are you going to say about it? Shall I expect the worst? I expected it to just be an average piece of sci fi. It's set in the year 2257 on a new new world colony on another planet. And the men of the colonies discovered when they landed on the planet that their innermost thoughts are broadcast out to the world in what they refer to as the noise. The women were not subjected to this, but in a bitter war with the native species known as the Spackle, all the females were killed 
whilst only half the men survived. And Holland plays Todd Hewitt, who's helping his adoptive fathers on their farm, providing for the community, which is run by David Prentice, played by Mads Mickelson in rather elaborate fairy coats. Absolutely marvellous um, costume design in this. Uh, when a scout craft crashes, the only survivor being a female named Viola, played by Daisy Ridley, Todd finds his life in upheaval as he tries to get it to safety and signal the mothership. And the film quickly drew me in. The noise is an intriguing concept and it offers lots of potential as people are desperately trying to disguise their thoughts so that people can't un people can't see their innermost secrets or when they're trying to find information and keep things secret, they're trying to stop people around them. And there's so much potential in there which is not really tapped into. But once Daisy Ridley arrives on the screen and the interplay between her and Tom Holland starts up, that serves the film well. And it's the likable, affable nature of the pair of them that carries the film through what is a bit of an awkward 109 minutes runtime that you can see the problems with. You can see where the reshoots took place. You can see the potential that it had and how it steps away from that potential to just play a little too safe. And the last act struggles. It tries to amplify the pedal, but it doesn't quite work. And it feels right. underwhelming in the end. But it generated enough goodwill with the earlier part and with Ridley and Holland to make me overlook what was likely the result of the reshoots and the production problems. And it's, it's a decent sci-fi attempt that is probably served better by the small screen viewing. I think if I'd have been more disappointed with this if I'd wasted time in a cinema screen watching it. This is a film that plays so well on the small screen that it made me get to the end of it and go, well, you know what? I can see what they were trying to do. And that would have made an interesting spin-off story. So a sequel to this on TV could work. It'll never get it because it's bombed. But it's an intriguing bit of sci-fi. If you like Doug Lyman's approach to making like filmmaking of sci-fi, I mean, he gave us Edge of Tomorrow. What's not to like? It's worth checking out. Just don't expect anything magnificent. And you'll be pleasantly surprised. Okay, I'm more interested in that. I've heard, heard all of the uh, um, production nightmare. I, I like Doug Lyman. I know he's got a sort of a, a liquidy way of making films, which is to say that uh, he, he shoots a lot of a lot of stuff and lets lets the edit take over. So I'm always intrigued by by how he makes films, and and sometimes that that really works, like you said, Edge of Tomorrow. Sometimes it just falls it falls a little bit flat. But I'm more interested now listen to your review than I was before that. Is that it for reviews? Uh, just one last quick one, and that's the documentary Schumacher that landed on Netflix. Now, this one's purely for fans of Formula One. It's a look at the career and life of Michael Schumacher, and it's composed of new and archive footage of interviews with those close to him, such as his wife, Karina, his brother, Ralph, his children, Gina Marie and Mick, and prominent names within Formula One, such as Damon Hill, Mika Hakkinen and Bernie Eccleston. The film presents an insight into the driver who was known for his serious and sometimes reckless approach to racing and allows us to discover his inspirations and how he fought to prove to himself more than anyone else that he was the best. It's well edited and it's a compelling look at the man and his legacy from his early days on the kart circuits all the way through to his success on the Formula One circuits and then his retirement from the sport which eventually led to the tragic skiing accident, which left him brain damaged and put into a medically induced coma for over a year and his eventual retirement from complete public life into seclusion and privacy. Sometimes emotional, always engaging. Any fan of motorsports will find a lot to love in this documentary. This is a perfect example of how a documentary should be put together. So anything to expect this week, Andy? Anything uh, we get our popcorn ready for? 
at the big screen and anything we can warm up a nice cup of tea, sit down and relax at home. So at cinemas, I mean, the big anticipation for us, the many saints of Newark lands at cinemas, which is the prequel to The Sopranos. Which we'll be reviewing next week. We have two films at the cinemas from this Friday, which are The Green Knight finally gets a release and The Man Who Sold His Skin. Both the films that I've already seen, so we will be talking about both of them next week. On streaming, Now TV and Sky, we have Super Intelligence. James Corden and Melissa McCarthy star in this sci-fi comedy. Let me just stop you there, Andy. Move on. Move on. (laughs) Let me just stop you there. I mean, it it screams of cancel your Sky movie subscription now, doesn't it? Over on Netflix, we have the starling. Melissa McCarthy, again, is Lily, who suffers a loss and finds avenue for her grief through a battle with a territorial bird, a starling. The conflict gives her courage to heal her broken past. Move on. (laughs) There's also Intrusion, which sees a husband and wife move to a small town. and home invasion leaves the wife to Thankfully not. Okay, stay, stay then. <laughs> home, stay the home invasion leaves the wife traumatized and suspicious that those around her may not be who they seem to be. And then over on Amazon, we have The Kitchen with Melissa McCarthy about <laughs> gangsters' wives who take matters into their own hands. Yes, it's Melissa McCarthy week over on streaming this week. I, so I, I don't mean to be rude. Has she died? And they've just sort of doing a tribute <laughs> week and I've just not noticed. What's interesting is we seem to have like the bland comedy on Sky. We have what looks like one of her serious drama approaches on Netflix with the Starling. And then we have the gangster comic book approach with the kitchen. So it's three different aspects of Melissa McCarthy that you can explore if you really feel that intrigued. I have heard good things about the kitchen, to be honest. The Starling, to be fair, intrigues me because yeah. it's also got co-stars Timothy Oliphant, Chris O'Dowd, Kevin Klein, and David Diggs. So it sounds like a, a, a good drama approach. And I know that Melissa McCarthy can deliver when it comes I, to the drama. I'm just being mean. I'm being mean. But super intelligence can just get, yeah. can just get lost. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much it for films on the streaming and cinemas this week. So it's quite a packed week, really. It is. Uh, I'm definitely interested in the Sopranos prequel. So uh, let's talk about What If. We've been chatting about What If since it started on Disney+, Plus, the MCU animated series, which takes a look at how certain events within Marvel films can take a drastic change by the elements just being slightly altered. Follow me. Enter the multiverse of infinite possibilities. Reality is not a straight line. Every passing moment is a chance for a new offshoot, a new variation. In fact, there are more realities than you can possibly fathom. An infinite number of what-ifs. Who are you? I am the Watcher. I observe all that transpires here. Oh! But I do not, cannot, will not Only on Disney Plus. This week was, well, for me, the weakest one we've had so far. This one I found, I engaged. Uh, there were moments of it I liked, but it didn't quite land for me. And this week it was, what if Killmonger rescued Tony Stark? And an interesting premise, Killmonger comes along just at the point where, right at the beginning of uh, Iron Man, the uh, Humvee is, is attacked. Killmonger rescues Tony Stark. And they become friends, and it all turns out to be a clever hoax by Killmonger as he still seeks revenge upon 
Wakanda and the Black Panther. So elements of this I liked. It wasn't a complete disaster. My, my tone might even uh, give you the impression that it was. I just think it's the weakest one we've had so far. It just seemed as though lots and lots of plot elements were trying to pull together to create a cohesive uh, idea for the Kill, Killmonger's revenge. And everything was one of those, oh, that's in place, that's in place. The whole domino effect, you pull one piece out, the thing would have fallen apart. And the plot was pretty much like that. Of course, the upside is uh, great voice work uh, from Michael B. Jordan returning as Killmonger. And the animation style is still, every week, absolutely superb. And it did have some great moments of it. It just didn't feel cohesive for me. Andy, your thoughts? I found this one to be immediately forgettable and it had no real lasting impression. The the biggest issue that I have with this is that whereas all the other what ifs, we've seen the characters do something different, be variants. You know, when we saw Black Panther become a Star-Lord character, he was basically the same character, but he was doing a whole different thing. And, you know, we've seen Doctor Strange going darker and darker and darker. But with this, we saw Killmonger basically being Killmonger and doing exactly the same storyline that he did in Black Panther. He's going to manipulate people, pretend that he's a a hero in order to take control and uh, destroy everything from within. It's exactly the same story. There's no point to it. There's nothing changed in this universe, as far as I can see, except for some people died. That's about it. I watched it. And like you say, the animation was still great. And I was kind of just following it. But it got to the end of it and I just went, eh. yeah. Yeah, I t- totally agree. Yeah, it, it, it had no, it had nothing to make it stand out. They could have really played with the idea that, well, maybe Killmonger could have been a better person. Maybe Killmonger could have been a hero. But no, he was just Killmonger. Um, it does feel, and from the mid-halfway point trailer that was released this week as well, that some of these are getting a sequel and that's okay. And some of them I'd like to see continuations of. And, but this particular story, if it's only necessity was to create a sequel to it, then you've, you, you lost me on the initial impact because I'm, I'm not that intrigued on seeing where this goes. And if, if it does go into, you know, the, the remaining Avengers banding together, then I think I'd rather have seen that in this episode all along rather than see the, the, the what if that we've got so disappointing i don't know what next week's is yet but so far out of a great run this has been by far the poorest yeah we'll be reviewing what if again on next week's show and that folks is just about it but before we go we do this every week andy and i'll tell you about something that we've read seen watched enjoyed in our neat things andy what's your neat thing for the week so my neat thing is from 2011, and it's a six-part series that aired on the BBC, was sorely underwatched at the time, and never saw a second series continuation of the story. But damn, if it wasn't one of the best shows around. And that was The Fades. And it's landed this past week on BBC iPlayer for everyone to get round to enjoying. I think I caught the very first episode of this, but I didn't catch the rest of the season. It was such a good series. It was from creator Jack Thorne, who had worked with Shane Meadows on This Is England TV series, and more recently is behind His Dark Materials and doing a fantastic job of adapting those novels over to the screen. This was a tale of Paul, a student who can see the dead or the fades around him, who gets drawn into a battle between the angelics and the fades. And it was deserving of the BAFTA it received for best drama service at the time. The cast alone, if this show were made now and released now, it would easily garner more viewers. 
Ian DeCastaker, Daniel Kaluuya, Tom Ellis, Natalie Dormer, all names who went on to make major roles for themselves in one way or another afterwards. And this was part of their early career. I was there at the start of uh, these people like really making a mark on things. And I remember watching this week on week when it first released and just being drawn into this this heaven versus hell kind of mythology that it was building and being so disappointed when no one else had watched it and it got cancelled at the end of the first season because this could have really grown into such an epic storyline for the second series. Don't let the fact that you don't get a full story put you off. The fades landing on BBC iPlayer is a marvellously neat thing. And as soon as it dropped this week, I've been telling everyone to watch it because you will get to see what you missed out on. And, you know, you can hold out hope that maybe, just maybe, at some point, someone will go back and pick up the threads from the story and tell it further forwards. Cool. Good thing. So uh, we've talked about Shang-Chi a lot over the last few weeks, and we reviewed it a few weeks ago. And in my review, I mentioned that it wasn't the Shang-Chi that I remember. And therefore, I had to get over that issue to be able to enjoy the film. But once I, I did, I enjoyed the film. So I decided to go back and reread some of the Masters of Kung Fu, the comic in which featured Shang-Chi and his battle against his father at that point, uh, Fu Manchu, and his connection to the British Secret Service. Written by Doug Mensch, initially created by Stephen Engelhart and Jim Starlin, but it was Doug Mensch who took that character and rolled with it and turned it into the classic, classic series that it became. So going back... The things I still loved about it, the cinematic quality, Paul Galacy's art, highly influenced by Jim Steranko, has a cinematic feel. His cast in, of some of the characters, including Shang-Chi himself, who looks like uh, a young Bruce Lee, all, all look like major actors. Sean Connery, Mar uh, Marlon Brando, Clint Eastwood, all of these characters bear some resemblance to uh, a major star of, at the time. The connections between James Bond and Sherlock Holmes with one of the characters. The interrelationship between Shang-Chi and Liko Wu, his, his beloved, and, and of course his father, Fu Manchu, are all fantastic. And as the series progressed and got uh, and, and gave more of an input into Shang-Chi's life as this, this, this almost lonely warrior, not wanting to fight but being drawn into this, is, is at odds with the film. It's got a much more serious and somber tone to it. I'm broken up with, um, with with great graphic kung fu scenes. Uh, Mike Zek went on to draw this uh, series after Galacy left, which was a big leap. And then we had Gene Day, who, who sadly passed away, and his brother Dan took over the, the series. Now, it is a problematic series. It came out in the 70s at the back end of the boom of the kung fu phase. Uh, and while Doug Mensch's stories are intriguing, they now have a tendency to be a little bit overwordy. And there are some racial slurs which just don't feel as though uh, history's not treated them well. It really is assigned back to a time in history when racial slurs seem to be much easier to uh, um, to throw into any sort of storyline, especially when it came to, to Asians. But the, the quality of the stories, the quality of the relationships still makes this a classic book. I've just gone back and read up to the beginning of the Mike Zek era, and, and they are still beautifully told, uh, wonderfully dialogue stories, a little wordy in the sort of description department, but a fantastic start to Shang-Chi. That's my Shang-Chi, but, and I, I still love it, even with the clearly racial issues that the book now has, which complicate your enjoyment of it. 
but what a way to start and what it's led into into a it, it amazes me still seeing the, the character's name on the sides of buses on posters for a character that I love for so many, many years. And that's it for this week, folks. We'll be back again next week with another film file just for you. Andy, anything planned? It's, it's all a build-up for Bond at work this week, so all I've got planned is a lot of work and also a, a quiz, which I've, I've put together to run at the cinema. Fantastic. We'll see you again next week, but in the meantime... Sayonara, suckers.